0: Welcome to the Film Scene Podcast with your host, Zeph.
1: All right. On today's episode of Film Scene, we're pleased to have New York-based filmmaker Harry Greenberger. He's the writer and director of the upcoming film, Faraway Eyes, starring Christina Ricci, Andy Carl, and Nora Adair as well as the film, Staring at the Sun, with Taylor Rose and Jill Shachner. Welcome, Harry. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So I've had the privilege of watching both of Harry's feature films and I really enjoyed each film, and what I particularly like is that they are very different types of movies. So according to IMDb, Faraway Eyes is listed as a comedy, fantasy, romance, while Staring at the Sun is listed as a drama.
0: That's about right.
1: And so we're going to discuss each film, but before we do that, I'd love to discuss uh, your career prior to writing directing. I see that you have a long list of IMDb credits and uh, that you worked on many projects, from features to documentaries to music videos. Could you yeah. tell us a little bit about that?
0: Sure. I always like to joke that I've done almost every position in in the film business except for makeup and catering. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I I came out of film school thinking, oh no problem, I'll just uh, wait till the first person hires me to direct a movie and just start a directing career. But that's you know, that's an illusion that I was quickly uh, disabused of and. And, uh, I I quickly found out that, you know, that the work that's really available is, you know, you start as a PA and the business sort of starts to try to figure out what you might be useful as. And I showed a little bit of aptitude towards the grip department and then quickly showed more aptitude towards the camera department and got hired as a camera assistant and was loading film mags for a long time, which is something you don't even have to do anymore. (laughs) And, uh, and then was pulling focus pretty quickly after that, and sort of worked my way up, uh, pulling focus on commercials and uh, independent films for a while, and then followed that with sometimes being a camera operator, and then sometimes being a DP, and and always uh, writing along the way. And then uh, realized at a certain point, there were a couple of times where I almost directed feature films that had come around that uh, friends or acquaintances. Uh, had But usually it was just that those projects fell apart, uh, you know, funding-wise or whatever. And then eventually you started to figure out that music videos were a great way back into, you know, like sort of a backdoor into it where you could do a little short narrative, uh, three minutes, and you didn't have to buy the rights to the music because it came with the project. And, and that uh, opened the door to, to trying to get a feature off the ground.
1: Did you always want to segue into directing? Was that always the plan from you first getting into film?
0: Yeah, I wanted to direct movies since I was nine years old. I was, you know, when I saw Star Wars when I was nine, I was like, whatever it is that, whoever did that, whatever he's doing, I want to do that. And uh, I think that happened to a lot of kids in my generation, you know, that uh, Star Wars, at least, if not ruined their life or uh, changed their life, it certainly warped their life. and, And then, you know, shortly after that, I started seeing... More ambitious films, and those made me want to try to make it more ambitious films. I want, like I always joke, I wanted to make movies, and then I wanted to make films. In quotes.
1: Nice. Uh, so, tell us a little bit about your film, Staring at the Sun.
0: Well, it's a, uh, it's, <clears throat> it's kind of a coming-of-age story about uh, two teenage Hasidic girls who uh, can't stand living sort of under the thumb of the the repressive religious community that they grew up in and they reach a point a breaking point and they feel that they have to leave and they run away using the family car and trying to get across the country to find the freedom that they kind of naively assumed was out there everywhere and the idea is that the you know no matter where they uh try to find it they find out that there's rules there's there's rituals there's uh you know, things are also done by the book everywhere. It's just a different book,
1: right? Right. That's interesting. And what what influenced the idea behind the story? Do you have any family members that are part of the Hasidic community, or no? No.
0: no I um, I saw. Uh, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, uh, no, no. <laughs> I saw. Um, I saw an article in the paper. It's got to be about seventeen, eighteen years ago now. That just said uh, two Hasidic girls had gone missing, and they didn't, at that point, they didn't know what had happened to them. Are they, you know, kidnapped? Are they murdered? Are they, did they run away? Are they lost? Um, You know, or did they, or are they just irresponsibly at at a friend's house and never called home? And it was, uh, and I, at that point, since it was such a wide open thing, I started thinking about like, what would be the, you know, there's a movie in there. What would be the most interesting thing? And I thought the most interesting thing is if they chose to leave and run away, and then why would they leave? And I just kind of, I just followed that thread. And it turned out they had run away. And then, uh, this isn't based on what actually happened to those girls because at the time I didn't know what happened. I just I found that they had run away. Sure. And uh, and so I just kind of ran with it and made up my own versions of the two characters and uh, not knowing anything about the real two girls. And since then there have been funny coincidences where I've run into people that knew those real two girls and I've found out a lot about what's become of them in real life. But again, the it really doesn't have anything to do with um, my film because. You know, it was based on a lot of, you know, my own imaginings and suppositions.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I thought the acting um seemed so natural between Taylor Rose and Jill Schachner. Their performances as uh the Hasidic Jewish girls, they really it, it actually took me about thirty minutes into watching the movie to realize that uh they were actors. I'm like, did he get actual people? And I mean that oh, as wow. a testament to their acting <laughs> because it just there seemed to be such an authenticity to their performances, and tell me a little bit about how that was achieved.
0: Uh, well, I, I agree with you. I think they're both phenomenal actors, and in a funny way, they couldn't be further away from from what those characters are. Uh, uh, you know, Taylor Rose, you know, not only is not Hasidic, she's not Jewish, she's Italian. Yeah. And, um, you know, we joked that uh, when we first cast her in the role, there were a couple things I had never thought, or nor was allowed to ask during the casting process. She wasn't Jewish. She didn't know how to drive a car, and she doesn't eat meat. And um, and the character is supposed to drive a car, and, and there's a crucial scene where she's you know uh, eating non kosher meal, yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, and so and Jill is a, you know far from being a Hasidic girl. She was a working actress, and she was on Broadway in Les Misérables when she was a kid um playing the little girl in that and uh i actually
1: recognized her it was about like 25 or 30 minutes since the film i'm like oh i know who she is (laughs) you know then i realized i'm like yeah those are those are actors but that's a testament to their performance totally yeah
0: thank you yeah it's i i was i was blown away by what they were able to bring to it and they you know they immediately became indelibly those girls to me that uh you know it's hard to imagine anyone else playing those roles now in my own head
1: yeah I can see why. What was uh, one of the biggest challenges of making that film?
0: Uh, aside from the standard low-budget challenges of making a low-budget movie, which we had all of those, uh, to me, the you know one of the funnier challenges was that since we shot in a real Hasidic community and real Hasidic homes and real Hasidic schools and stuff, uh, it was kind of funny. If you make a film about kind of the frustrating unfairness of these sort of arbitrary religious rules... Uh, But then you shoot in a way where you were forced to abide by them to shoot in the community. You know, we had to keep the women on the crew dressed by Hasidic standards, like down to the wrists and up to the collarbone and, you know, skirts down to the ankle and things like that. But also, you know, we couldn't, the crew couldn't be working on a, on, you know, on Shabbos, on the Sabbath, you know, Friday into Saturday. So, uh, and we... You know, we could, you know, the crew, the meals had to all be at least to, you know, if they were going to go into the home, all the food had to be to Hasidic standards the and kosher, to kosher standards. standards. Yeah. And and so in a way that was a funny challenge. And also the community, we're shooting in a community that there's some degree of trepidation that we're going to um, not just insult them, but just portray them falsely or unfairly. And we tried really hard I did a lot of research to try and see if we could make sure that we, you know, not just were accurate, but we were not being unkind in any way. You did, know?
1: did they end up seeing the finished film?
0: A couple of them did. Um, the, uh, you know the, We reached out to different sects, and, um, you know, the like the Satmer and the, um, some of the other sects didn't want to have anything to do with us and wanted nothing to do with the film production, but the chabad Lubavitch sect was very kind and very open, and they have a media liaison, which is kind of an unexpected thing. And that media liaison, Rabbi Mahdi Selickson, was kind enough to come out to our uh, Manhattan Film Festival screening and watch the movie. I invited him. I said, please, you know, bring your wife, bring anyone else you want on me. And um, since they had never asked to read the script while we were shooting, and they'd never asked to see anything, they never asked for approval of any of the content, um, even though I told them that it was, you know, there's some harsh words about Judaism and the you know the harsh you know, fundamentalist Judaism and the and the Hasidim in general, they didn't have any complaints about that. They let us make the movie we wanted to make. And he came out and I I told him if you even if you hate the movie, please feel invited to come up and join me for the Q and A and say anything you want about it. It's uh, which was maybe a dumb thing for me to offer, but he got up and um, he kind of. In a in a in a nice way, he kind of took over the Q and A, which was fine. I kind of invited him to do that, and uh, but he he didn't have any real complaints other than you know some very small inaccuracies. He thought that, um, but other than that, I think he, you know, it felt pretty warmly received by the Hasidic the few Hasidic people that have seen it. And we even had a a woman who was a Hasidic runaway, former Hasidic runaway, who now works as an actress and a consultant to Hasidic based projects. And she came out and was brought some former Hasidic. Uh, friends of hers who all really seemed to embrace it. So it felt like we'd not only didn't offend people, it seemed like we moved some of the right people, which seemed good.
1: That's amazing. Um, did the film evolve at all from when you first had the inception of an idea for the film to the finished film as far as tone or story or in, in, in any way?
0: Well, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the, the first version I wrote, um, a good number of years ago, right when the story was fresh, maybe 17 years ago, I wrote like uh, about half of it. I wrote the beginning and the ending and got them to where they were going and then uh, sort of didn't fully explore that. I just, I knew where I wanted the story to go and how I wanted it to end and then put it aside while I worked on other projects for years. And so when I went back to it, I was older and I'd seen more and I had time to sort of let that percolate in my mind. and, and, uh, And then... As we were shooting in the Hasidic world, you know, learning new things were, you know, it, it brought up things that got woven into the fabric of it. And one of my actresses uh, was kind enough to point out an opportunity I was missing. I don't want to give away the ending, but she actually helped to sort of hand me the idea that really enriched the ending, the, the part about the, the, the part relating to the father and the ending and just suggested that I follow the thread that I'd left dangling there about about the one character's father and, and write a new scene to sort of resolve that, and and I did that. And so that um, that developed uh, in the in the few weeks before we started shooting.
1: Yeah, it was a great scene. Oh, thank you. I pulled it thank off you. well. Thank you. Uh, I, I also love the scene. This doesn't give away, I think, too much of a spoiler, but when she's at her house, and she kind of uncovers a portion in her room that you see that uh, yeah. she has uh, a poster from. It's a David Bowie poster, right? it's David Bowie. But I just love the fact that she l- likes like glam rock and mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. like that.
0: Yeah, I always I had my heart set on it being Bowie because I thought Bowie represents you know changing your identity and choosing your identity and like sort of taking on and putting off different guises over the course of you know your life, and uh, and I really wanted it. And the song we chose that we used in that scene is a Bowie song. It was a bit of a hassle to get it, which is understandable because they don't know us. But the idea was that it's like I wanted her to be hearing like, you know, sex and danger and and intrigue and yearning and all this stuff. And that like the the idea that, you know, music would be her window out of that world. She wouldn't have any other way to encounter the, you know, these, uh, you know, the multiples of different um, experiences that she's nowhere near in her acidic world. And I thought like just, you know, sometimes it seems like just hearing a a bit of really impassioned music from another world can just open a window into your world. And so that's, and I thought Bowie's the perfect example of that because it's so much, it's rock and roll and it's sex and danger and, you know, all of those things. Absolutely.
1: I, I thought it was just cool to see how things that, you know, just a lot of people take for granted, like listening to rock or just, you know, being involved appreciating pop culture in any sort of way for for her so taboo when it was like a reveal in the room that i thought that was that was really interesting oh yeah thank you you. that like it's like you know what people take for granted it's like you just like you can't take those sort of things for granted Mm
0: -hmm. yeah yeah
1: um also i just want to comment again just like their their chemistry i thought between jill and taylor was just was so amazing is that something, did you cast, like, who did you cast first?
0: Well, it's kind of funny. We um, Oftentimes in movies they do what's called a chemistry read, where you cast actors and then you have them read with each other, and we didn't have time to do that. So I um, they were cast separately, and they'd never met till only make, maybe two days before we started shooting, and it was a gamble. But I really had this feeling that they would have a chemistry together. And um, I don't know if it's even a bad thing to say, like another pair of actresses who were really, really wonderful actresses um, had auditioned for the roles. And it came down to that pair or this pair. In my head, it was it was down to two pairs. Like I couldn't see them sort of mixed and matched right. as pairs with each other. And the other pair were lifelong best friends. Um, actual, a, best friend. actual lifelong best friends. And you know, I just had to go with my gut and I really thought, you know, I like the reason I chose these two girls was they actually felt like that's what I saw in my head while I was writing it. And I felt like it was my first film and I thought as a it felt like it was gonna be a better choice to to know that it was gonna feel like the story I had in my head while directing, it was gonna make it easier to direct and know that I'm not trying to make them into these characters, but rather that they're already going to embody them in my own mind. And so I chose these two girls that had never met and then they became now they're now they're really lifelong friends, and That's right. yeah their their chemistry was immediate, and everybody assumed that they'd known each other forever, and it became a joke. People would ask, "How long you guys have worked together?" They like, oh, we we met last week, <laughs> you know. I love that
1: it paid off because I think the actors that you chose really were authentic to the story.
0: Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, I just ran into Jill on the street in Times Square maybe a week ago, and uh, just by chance, uh, coming home from a mixing session for my second movie. Just uh, nice. when which, was the last
1: time you had seen her prior to that.
0: Um, it hadn't actually been that long because we did a lot of screenings for it over the last two years uh, at festivals, and she's been kind enough. If she's within reach, they both, if they can, they come out to the screenings. But it's funny we have them both in the second movie too, just in tiny roles. because yeah. I kind of like the idea. They're great actors. Why not like you know use them again? You know they're not the leads in it just because thematically it wouldn't work. But um, uh, and so I had just seen Jill on the screen in the mixing session. Um, we were looking at stuff and i I walked out and so i just literally walked away from seeing you on a on a big screen like three blocks from here
1: kind of serendipitous mm -hmm, yeah exactly so before getting into talking about your latest film faraway eyes which i saw by the way as a courtesy it was like a special screening hosted by patty schumann and dave steck who run yo fest Mm and yockers shout out to patty and dave yeah they're great um you kind of mentioned what attracted you initially into filmmaking when you first saw star wars but i think what keeps you attracted to filmmaking
0: i always knew in my life i wanted to try to be an artist in some way and then i think you know that idea other people wiser than me have said that you know film is a combination of all the art forms and with you know the editing being the one art form that's you know the only thing that's exclusive to filmmaking but the other one it's you know it's it's drama comes from theater and the you know the cinematography comes from photography and painting and drawing and all those things and um, the writing comes from writing and so it's like it, it it's it seems like it's the you know it's an art it's, form that's all encompassing exactly yeah I agree that's yeah. what attracts me to yeah. it as well yeah and the, the tools are uh, uh, infinitely effective if you you know like we all might fail trying to get them to work but it's it's there to be done like the the, the masters of the craft, Seem to be able to find a way to make any as as one director said, like anything you can imagine, you can film. Yeah, and uh, you just you may have to work hard to figure out how to do it. Kubrick said that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: And what what are some films and filmmakers? Apparently, Kubrick was definitely an influence. So, uh, who are some influences on you as you were growing up?
0: Um, Well, I you know I became pretty obsessed with Kubrick uh, pretty early on. And uh, and also you know Martin Scorsese and I love Terrence Malick I love the Cohen brothers I love I grew up loving Hitchcock I grew up loving Steven Spielberg I uh, and then just you know, more and more you know Francis Ford Coppola you know Michael Cimino, that period of the 70s where sort of the maverick period of the of 70s directors where um, the industry seemed to be centered around just letting directors make the movies that are, that they want to make. Having a um, real perspective. on Right. The films. Yeah. yeah. And it was like the way the French auteur theory from decades before that was sort of transferred yeah, well, tr- over to America tr- 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 right tr- around. Forward. Yeah.
1: Dar, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And so th- David Lynch. Yeah. Also.
1: So tell us a little bit about faraway eyes. What motivated, tell us first of all, the premise of the film.
0: Um, well, it's a, I would say it's a black comedy uh, about a love story set in the afterlife. And, Uh, it's, you know, it's meant to be like romantic and darkly funny and, and, uh, darkly serious. And, uh, we're trying to, it's kind of a roller coaster of ride of, of clashing tones, but the idea came from, you know, it starts with a character dying after a bad breakup and, uh, I started thinking after a breakup that it's funny that when you right after a breakup is when you're expected to then get out there and try and find love, but usually your head's all spun around and you're in a bad place about life and love and relationships. And but that's when everyone's telling you to get out there and try it. And I started trying to like think of a way to illustrate that idea that you know that if you had to find love right after somebody had broken your heart, how would you do it? And then what would love mean to you at that point? And what would you know? What would, uh, and if, if you, I, I literally, I, I, I didn't nearly die, but I had a thing driving away from the breakup, uh, driving on the highway where I kind of thought about, oh, if that had just changed right there, and I, you know, if I had been killed on the highway, you know, um, I would have died single, and if, you know, I just, I sort of ran with the idea from there that, like, well, if I had died single and had been, had arrived in an afterlife, which I don't believe in, the, 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 and it had been told that oh no, you have to have love to pass over. Then what would love be if it was separated from the notion of children or careers or or you know financial success? And if it was just uh, stripped bare to its essence and was and you were forced to find love that meant something unto itself, what would that be? And what would it mean to you to have to have found it? If yeah. that's not too much to say pretentiously in a podcast, well,
1: I, th- I think it was. I think it was a cool concept that I one thing I've loved about it is that the afterlife is also here in New York city. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's like they're among us, but we can't see them. That mm-hmm. sort of thing. I yeah. Thought that was pretty cool. Oh, thank you. thank you. It it was also cool seeing Christina Ricci in the movie. I think that was great. What was it like working with her? It was
0: great. Yeah. She's, she's a terrific actress. She's a terrific person. She's uh sweet and, and sort of, you know, just, obviously amazing at her craft, absolutely easy to direct because she already, you know, like we had come to an understanding of what the character was and how it was going to work in the very first time we met about it. And so aside from, you know, tiny little thoughts along the way, she already had the character, you know, pretty perfect when she walked in the door. And, you know, our mutual conception of it was was pretty solid. Uh, and so, you know, she was just... Uh, you know, she was, uh, she, was, um, um, she was just amazing on set and how, uh, you know, it's not anything like her. And, of course, she just can become this, as actors do, she can just become this completely other person. And it's absolutely convincing on screen and in person, too. But she's, uh, and the funny thing is I had worked with her uh, when she was a kid. When I was first starting out, I was a camera assistant on a movie she did when she was 11 and um, which so film was that? It's a film nobody seems to have really seen called Cemetery Club. She did it between the two uh, Adams Family, family. movies, yeah. and so she was famous from the first one and hadn't yet done the second one. She was well known from Mermaids with Cher before that, and it was right. this amazing movie with an incredible cast. Well, I mean, it's not an amazing movie; it's a good movie with an incredible cast that had uh, um, all these Oscar winners and everything. It was like uh, um, Ellen burston Danny Aiello. Uh, Olympia Dukakis, Diane uh, Ladd, um, Wallace Shawn, Catherine Keener, wow. and um, I'm probably forgetting somebody, uh, Jerry Orbach, and um, it's amazing cast, and, you know, Christina Ricci played Catherine Keener's daughter and Ellen Burstyn's granddaughter, and so when we cast her, I kept thinking, well, this is funny that, you know, Like, 30 years later, I'm directing her, and I I brought it up to her, and and she didn't really... She certainly didn't remember me, but she she said she kind of didn't particularly remember doing that. She remembered doing the movie, but she didn't really have any firm memories of it. It wasn't a huge part. She just, uh, But it was just a funny little coincidence to have, you know... It's very
1: funny. And it actually ties into just uh, your film, just the ensemble nature of this particular film with you know i noticed uh you had a lot of familiar faces like jackie cruz from Marge mm-hmm. is the new black and veteran new york actor michael Raspoli from billions and the sopranos amongst many other things and the so deuce. i thought that was cool yeah that was a, an ensemble piece which was which was which was great
0: oh yeah yeah thank you we have a we have a really brilliant casting director who helped make sure that we you know got uh as a, a an amazing actor in almost every role that we, that uh, you know, it was worthy of of anyone being in it, you know. And so, uh, you know, she helped. And uh, you know, we went through, you know, a lot of actors trying to find just the right person for each role. It's like you don't just want, um, you know, a name per se in the role. You just want somebody who's gonna right embody fit. it. Yeah. And so yeah, we were, we had Jeannie Berlin, who's Oscar nominee, Elaine May's daughter. Nice. I don't know if you knew her, but she's terrific, and we were very lucky to get her too.
1: Amazing. And, and uh, I thought the music was fantastic. Oh, thank so, you. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the the score of the film.
0: Uh, well, uh, we have some, we got really lucky with that too. Uh, uh, we have some original music by uh, Angelo Badalamenti, who did the, uh, the music for Twin Peaks and all the David Lynch films since Blue Velvet. And we also have some score from uh, the amazing Joseph Loduca, who did the music for a lot of the Sam Raimi films, uh, the Evil Dead movies and some TV series like Xena, Warrior Princess and Hercules and Spartacus and stuff. And then we have some original songs, uh, just like in the previous film by Aaron Lee Tazgin, who's a friend of mine who does, uh, who is an amazing musician. And then just like the other film, we have a couple of songs from Jesse Mallon, who's a friend of mine is an amazing musician as well. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we're, the music's always been a really hugely important thing to me. The cut you saw was a, um, more of a preview cut that was about eight to ten minutes longer than what we have now as the finished cut, and a lot of the music's been swapped out, but you're, uh, some of the things that I imagine you probably really liked, like the Aaron Taj and stuff, that's still in, and uh, some other things have been switched out, but I'm hoping you like them just as much or better. Absolutely.
1: How, how was the experience of making this film different from your first feature? Or was it different? I mean, every film is different, right? So, yeah. so how how was how would you contrast it?
0: Um, it was definitely different. Uh, it was, you know, we didn't have any visual effects on the first film, which right off the bat was different because, you know, in the second film there's a bunch of them because of the afterlife component. And so the, um, you know, there's a lot of time-consuming stuff you have to do where, you know, working with green screen and, uh, you know, trying to make sure that, you know, that uh, camera positions are you know measured for purposes of of visual effects and things like that. So that was right off the bat a big difference. But also, the second one was a bigger budget, so a few more things were possible. But <laughs> largely that went to the effects and the and um, as it would as you'd expect. But um, it was it was definitely different coming in as a no longer a first time filmmaker because it, uh, we were lucky and we were able to show about a week and a half into the shooting of the second film we had our premiere for the first film and the premiere went really well and our cast of the second film came out and saw the first film and I I think they already you know had total faith in me as a director but I think it was, it was a nice bit of reassurance to show them like oh there's the film that I did before and I think they you know some of them told me they were very moved by the you know by the writing and the directing and the characters and stuff like that and I think you know it, it definitely felt different not coming in feeling like you want to um, make sure people have faith in you. I, I think as a first-time director, you know, there's a little, at least a little bit of a sense of you know, people know that that there's a chance you might not know what you're doing. Right, right. <laughs> you have to sort of prove yourself. Right, and even just and they mostly people are very supportive and they want to help you. So it's like uh, I think having a crew, you know, like you have an AD that just want to make sure that you, you know, um, that you understand. What needs to be done and I felt like I did because I had so much experience before that but I think you know in the second film some of the same crew including a, you know terrific AD Dave Bell, who um, uh, you know who had worked on music videos with me before that and he, he knew that I knew what I was doing and, and I feel like just gradually you know with each film I imagine there's more of a sense that people just know that you know that uh, they know that the captain of the ship has some sense of where the boat's going which yeah. is helpful I think
1: people that aren't involved in filmmaking have no idea how important the role of AD. Is yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Shepherding things forward. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I've worked that position myself over the years, only a couple of times. Cause I hated that. It's such a, um, it's in a way a thankless job. It's an incredibly crucial job, but, um, uh, it doesn't feel like you do get a lot of appreciation from outside of the core group who understand what you're doing. And, uh, that's another reason I like to give David Bell um, a lot of credit because he helped make sure we brought, you know, brought the day home each day and uh, came home with all the shots we needed. And, and um, you know, uh, I'm not organized enough to be an AD. I've, I learned that on my first and second uh, shoots as AD. I thought, uh, yeah, this... Uh, <laughs> you- as as an AD, I would recommend you guys hire a better AD.
1: On this. <laughs> yeah, it definitely takes certain personality types to really shine mm-hmm. in that position. Um, so so I don't know if, you, if you're able to tell me the... Harry was telling me the greatest story ever <laughs> about the movie The Irishman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think I can. I'll just say it with the hell. All right, so my friend Jesse Mallon, who's a musician... Uh, Really didn't care for The Irishman when he saw it. He's a big Scorsese fan, and he's, uh, you know, he's even appeared in a Scorsese film himself. He's in Bringing Out the Dead, uh, playing a small role, co-written by Paul Schrader. Right, exactly. Yeah, and uh, not one of Scorsese's better films, but but it's got moments. But um, you know, he and he loves Scorsese, and he wanted desperately for The Irishman to be great, and he had read. You know, the book, I Heard You Paint Houses, and he was very familiar with it, couldn't have been more looking forward to it, and then he was very disappointed didn't love the movie. So then I worked with Jesse on some of his music stuff, and uh, we did uh, a, a large-scale uh, benefit show that happens every year in Jersey called The Light of Day. That's a benefit for Parkinson's research, and Bruce Springsteen shows up, not every year, but uh, many years of the 20 years he's shown up. And... So at this one, Bruce did show up, and he sang with Jesse. And after the performance with Jesse Mallon, we were in a hallway, and Jesse asked Bruce. You know, Bruce had said publicly that he loved The Irishman. And, and he asked Bruce, so did you, really, did you really like The Irishman? And Bruce uh, said, yeah, I, I, I was, uh, the first time I like the first time I saw it, I, I thought, uh, you know, I, I liked it, but with reservations. And then the second time, I realized that's what you got to do is you got to see it a second time, and you got to you got to you got to come to terms with its tempo, and and then once you do that, and you realize the movie it's trying to be, then I loved it. That's <laughs> amazing, <laughs> amazing impression. Oh, too, thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. here all week. I, I love yeah. the Irishman,
1: uh, and I did too. Particularly, I did appreciate it even more the second time when I was going, th- there are certain scenes that really were even more impactful.
0: Yeah. For me time. too.
1: That kind of segues into what I want to ask each guest coming onto the show is what are a couple of your favorite movie scenes from any movie of all time? So we'll start off with, I guess the first one.
0: Uh, the, you know, the one I thought of when you asked was sort of the pair of final scenes or towards the end of 2001, which is my favorite film. Um, if what I could split it up favorite. into two scenes. Absolutely. The, the, um, the scene where uh, Dave Bowman disconnects Hal, um, spoiler alert, uh, and uh, it's just, you know, I always thought it's amazing that um, a scene that's, it's essentially like a completely dispassionate, uh, in a sense, a murder scene, uh, or a revenge scene that's played out with such uh, amazing cinematic precision and um, just such a, such a delicate feeling as as Dave goes into Hal's brain room to disconnect him. We're left with nothing but um, the sound of Dave's breathing and the sound of uh, of uh, Douglas Rain's vo- voice in the role of Hal. Uh, basically, quietly and dispassionately begging for his life, and um, trying to manipulate, trying to uh, trying to uh, control, trying to um, trying to use logic, trying to use trying to gain sympathy, everything he can do. It's a computer trying to figure out how to beg for his life, and uh, knowing that he has no physical means to stop him. And the way it's shot, the way the you know the the beautiful color of it, the fact that it's basically shot up with the actor hanging upside down, suspended on wires to give him a, uh, the look that he's floating in zero gravity, and the way Hal is entirely depicted uh, with that single, unblinking, unfeeling eye. And yet, um, you know, I admit that when I watch the scene, I get choked up watching. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, w- watching the you know Hal lose it, and which is pretty f- amazing, right? It's yeah,
1: such an iconic scene, and mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing because Hal is sort of the antagonist, mm-hmm. beginning sort of the yeah. bad guy, and then you end up feeling bad for Hal.
0: Mm-hmm. And sure. you and you think he's a peripheral character. You think it's just like uh, the the technology of the ship when you first meet Hal. That uh, you know, it's it's entertaining that he is what he is, but there's. Uh, Uh, I think he's introduced in a way that you think it's just going to be a detail of their world, but it turns out And the moment when he says, I can feel it, when he's being cut off, when he says, you know, he's acknowledging that that each time a little piece of his um, hardware is disconnected, when he says, I can feel it, I think that's devastating.
1: Yeah, very impactful. Yeah. What's another scene?
0: Well, the second example I thought of from the same movie was the scene shortly after that, where Dave has gone... Dave Bowman from 2001 has gone through the, uh, into the monolith and across the universe uh, to the other side, where he has now arrived in what is essentially um, a zoo type environment for humans, where he's being
1: in the in the film it's depicted as a very fancy room.
0: Yeah, yeah, but it's like the idea is that it's sort of the natural habitat of a human. The way they've, right. you know, the aliens who we never see have have. Um, explored what's in his mind and have figured out how to make him feel like he's in a natural habitat and they've left him there for observation and the thing that always gets me about the scene is the way the way it's cut it's um you know it reminds me of when I was a kid my dad said oh when you get older it goes it goes faster and faster and um in that scene um uh Dave sees himself a little bit further into his life uh, out of and then the camera the film cuts to the the older version of him seeing the younger version of him fleetingly out of the corner of his eye, and then in another cut after that, the the younger Dave is gone, and now we're we're seeing that scene from the perspective of the slightly older version, and they repeat that several times, and just in a in a short series of maybe seven or eight cuts, we go through the entire rest of Dave Bowman's life, and um, to the point where he's. Um, Old and he's in the l- final moments of his life, and it's all done with these beautiful cuts that compress time, and um, and feel like the way to me that exemplifies and, and feels like the way um, getting older feels. Yeah. Uh, that go- that passing through parts of your life, you have that thing of like like um, you know, ho- holy shit! I feel like you know, just a minute ago I was thirty, and then I feel like oh, just I can't believe that it like. What you know? What on earth happened? I'm suddenly 40, and what and it it, it feels like that um, depicted lovingly and beautifully uh, uh, and unmistakably uh, on film. And I always thought that's just another of the many moments of mastery from Kubrick.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Well said. Yeah. So, what's next on the agenda, Harry?
0: Um, well, <laughs> finishing up Faraway Eyes and trying to get. Um, uh, distribution for both films we're uh you know we we're in a position where you know i feel good about um setting up distribution for faraway eyes in the very near future and and uh even though staring at the sun is the older film uh we're still seeking distribution for that because i really feel like it's it has merit and you know we won 41 awards and festivals all over the country for that and so i feel like uh you know it's a tougher film to market because it just doesn't have Christina Ricci, for instance, in it, and uh, and it doesn't have as well-known a cast, but I think it has as good a cast. Um, no insult to anybody on either film, but no, I not think at they're all. both. That just ties you know, into the business of yeah.
1: filmmaking. Uh, mm-hmm. As a filmmaker, I could I could attest to that, that. That unfortunately, that's just the that's just the way it is. And, mm-hmm.
0: um, yeah, and there's just so much content out there. There's so many people making films, and there's so you know um, a lot of it is name driven now, and. Uh, you know, uh, and you know, you can be a great, a terrific actor, and if people don't know your name, they're not necessarily going to choose to click on your film on Netflix. You know, everyone, you know, when you have a film out there, uh, no matter what position it is, no matter what size it is, what budget it is, the first question people often ask is, just, Who's in it? Yeah. And if they don't know anyone in it, it's kind of hard to get their interest, it's an uphill battle, mm-hmm. yeah, but um. Uh, you know, films break through from that every year, and then you know sometimes actors get famous in something else, and um, and that helps a film that they did a few years ago. And that's you know, uh, you know that could happen. But uh,
1: sure, you know. yeah, I could definitely see uh, that happening with Staring at the Sun for mm-hmm. sure because both both those actors uh, they're f- fantastic.
0: Oh yeah, and um, and uh, some of the actors in some of the other roles in it too have also broken into. It's funny, uh, you know, Raul Castillo, who's in Staring at the Sun, and Nora Arnazadar, who's in Far Away Eyes, they're both in the new Zack Snyder film, uh, uh, I think it's called Army of the Dead. It's, uh, you know, oh, so amazing. it's like a big, big, big budget action film, and, and uh, you know, they just happened to, they didn't know each other, but they were both in one of my films. <laughs> and, uh, Small world. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and... And I was trying to think what the other. I just had heard that Raul got cast in something else, really big, uh, you know. And so sometimes that helps just to bring attention to a film that may have fallen through the cracks commercially a few years ago. But uh, you know, if it's got somebody that is now recognizable, then people can market that film.
1: Interesting. Um, so is there is there any other news that you wanted to share? Any 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 festivals that you want to shout out, or any premieres, or?
0: Well, um, you know, let me ask you, you know, uh, we're not supposed to announce the festival premiere until Friday. So if I'm safe in doing that, because this won't exist until safe. Friday. Okay, we could, good. We can right. uh,
1: hold off on it.
0: Oh, perfect. Yeah, so we're, On your behalf. Thank you. Yeah, we're premiering uh, Faraway Eyes at the Cinequest Film Festival. Uh, we don't have the dates yet, but it'll be in the first uh, two weeks of March. We're going to be screening three or four times at that festival. It's in San Jose, California, in Silicon Valley. And um, it's a really big, really nice um, festival. It's kind of a special environment, and um, yeah, you know, we're going to be screening it there. And then congratulations, probably, yeah. thank you. Probably a bunch of festivals after that, I imagine. We're going to at least try for that, and uh, you know, um, but uh, it'll be a great way to show that film for the first time. And they they do a good job of promoting, and they have nice big uh, theaters, and they draw a good group of people.
1: Excellent. And how could people? Follow what you're doing. Is there? Do you have uh, social media that you want to shout out? Or
0: well, we um, we have a uh, just a web page for each of the two films uh, right now. There probably will be more once we do this festival. Right now, there's one for Staring at the Sun that is just Staring at the Sun and there's one for Faraway Eyes that's just Faraway Eyes Movie And um, you know, they're they're a little bit bare bones, but they're growing. And uh, like the they should both by about friday i imagine they should both have the trailers for both films up on them because right now there's only one for staring of the sun our trailer is gonna as they say nowadays drop online friday and uh you know so that'll be attached to our website on that day and uh, you can check it out there and um and on the cinequest.org website you'll be able to look up and if you happen to be in san jose in march you can come see the movie
1: excellent well thank you harry we appreciate thank you
0: coming on thanks for having me it's a pleasure the Film Scene Podcast is sponsored by Alphabet City Films. Hosted by Zef Kota. Executive Producer Jeff Kutler. Original music by Yuri Rybak. Thank you for listening.